You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Today's speaker is Greg Ballard, President and CEO of Glue Mobile. Greg has been at Glue Mobile for three years and has a long history as a CEO of many gaming, entertainment, and media companies, including 3DFX, My Family, and Warner Custom Music. Greg did his undergraduate work in political science and has a law degree from Harvard University. His talk is entitled Confessions of a Serial Silicon Valley CEO. Thank you, Tina. Uh, it's great to be here, and if it takes me a few seconds to get used to standing here, it's because I used to sit in the back, and it's just a little odd to be this far in the front. So if you see me sort of sneaking around to the back, you'll know why. Um, I uh, originally was just planning on talking to you about Glue Mobile, because we're a, a company right now that's uh, reasonably hot in Silicon Valley. A lot of people are asking questions about the company, uh, a lot of opportunities right now for me to go out and speak about what we're doing. We make uh, games for cell phones, basically, and we do it on a global basis. We do it as much in Korea and China and Malaysia and Thailand as we do in the United States and in Europe. Uh, we are one of a handful of global companies that have developed the capability of doing this on a worldwide basis. And that gets me an occasion to talk about the company a fair amount. I don't get a chance to talk about myself very often. And when I go home at night, there's certainly nobody there who wants to hear about it. Uh, so for the next hour, uh, you're going to hear me talk about the lessons that I have learned while in Silicon Valley. And the most embarrassing thing is that I looked at what I had written at the end of this and realized that after the 30 or so years that I've been in business, I don't have all that many insights. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the handful of insights that I have, and hopefully uh, in the course of that I'll pass on some kernel of wisdom uh, that, that hopefully someday will help you resolve a question or an issue that you have in your business careers if that's what you choose to do. Um, I once wrote speeches early in my career. Uh, I wrote speeches for people like Sarge Shriver, uh, one of the most, uh, I think, uh, interesting people that ever graced the political stage. I wrote speeches for Kevin White, who was the Boston uh, mayor for a, a number of years. Uh, and I wrote speeches for a while for George McGovern, and, and probably more interestingly for a guy named Charlie Ferris, who was the chairman of the FCC, and I'll talk about that for a while. I wrote a speech for him early in my career with him when he gave the commencement address at Boston College. And the theme of the speech was that he had chosen his career in government not in order to make a lot of money, but because he was terrified of being bored. And that he had always made a decision in his career and his life that the most important thing was to avoid boredom because boredom was much more terrifying than poverty. And whether it was writing that line or hearing that line spoken or being with him over the period of the three years in the Carter administration that I was there, something about that phrase has stuck with me all my life. And it has motivated a pretty eclectic career, which I'll show you in just a moment. And I, and I actually haven't put this down on paper in such a long time. It was sort of terrifying to see. Uh, I've done a lot of things over the course of the last uh, several decades. Uh, I started my life. Uh, as a lawyer. Uh, actually, I started my life working for George McGovern before I ever wanted to be a lawyer and ended up getting accepted into Harvard Law School and sort of deciding if you get accepted to Harvard Law School, you sort of have to go to Harvard Law School. And I went and I kept saying the whole time I was there, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. And people said, shut up, go to class, you'll be a lawyer. <laughs> and I came out the first year and I got recruited to go to a law firm and I went to this law firm and I said, you know, this is really boring. And everybody said, shut up, go off to law school, finish your second year, it'll be better. And you know, by the time I got through with it, it still wasn't better, but I had lost all imagination. So I left law school, and I had the, the, the grace to turn down a lot of offers from law firms, and I went to work then in the Carter administration. I worked for a guy named Charlie Ferris, who was then the chairman of the FCC. There was a lot of stuff going on in the world in those days of federal communications. It was the day in which uh, cable television was being deregulated. It was a time when, believe it or not, cell phones were being uh, unleashed into the world where the first regulations were being passed. It was a time when the telephone companies and the cable companies were first starting to talk about how they would compete against each other. It was one of the most interesting periods of time uh, that I had uh, in my career. And I went from that uh, and, and practiced law for a couple of years in which I discovered all the things that I had originally thought about law turned out to be true. It was really boring. 
And I had probably one of the most interesting law practices in the world. One of my first clients was a guy named Ted Turner. And Turner had just started this, this thing called WTBS, the Superstation. He had just launched CNN, a 24-hour news station, and he was looking for somebody to run his Washington office. Uh, and I took that job. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Although the more I got to know Turner, and Ted Turner in particular, the more I realized I wanted to be Ted Turner and not Ted Turner's lawyer. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, there's not a job description like that at Turner Broadcasting other than Ted's. Uh, and as I suggested that I wanted to be Ted, Ted suggested I take that idea elsewhere. <laughs> and I did. Uh, and I moved clear across the country, and it was probably one of the most difficult, bravest decisions that I've ever made in my life to this day. Because I left what was a very good career in Washington, D.C., where I was probably going to be the youngest vice president in Turner Broadcasting's history, where I could have literally been the most senior of the people representing networks throughout Washington, D.C. And I, I knew deep in my heart that Washington, D.C. and being a lawyer, no matter how you dress it up, wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't even know how to spell the word, but I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had a friend who was an entrepreneur, and the way he had gotten to be there was by going to the Boston Consulting Group, learning a little bit about business, and then sort of passing himself off as an entrepreneur. So I went to the Boston Consulting Group, learned a little bit. At that point, I literally didn't know what a balance sheet or a P&L were. I'm still not quite sure. Uh, and from that evolved a business career that has been eclectic at times. It's been successful at times. And it's been a failure, uh, an abject failure at times. But the one thing that has been the hallmark of my career and that I'm most proud of is there's never been a time when it hasn't been fun, where I haven't felt like I woke up every day looking forward to going to the office. I mean, there were times where I have been beaten down uh, by circumstances, where I have felt exhausted from the stress of dealing with personalities and people and investors and circumstances, but I've never been bored. Uh, and there were periods of time where I thought the trade-off between boredom and poverty was going to be a very real one. Uh, but ultimately, uh, my success has been uh, accomplished through a couple of the startups. And uh, I can talk to you about those as I go through and share some of the vignettes of my career and some stories and some lessons that maybe uh, will be helpful to you later on. There are three basic categories I want to talk about. When I think about business, these are the three most important things that I think about. And the first is really products. Uh, because at the end of the day, whether it's in Silicon Valley, on Wall Street, uh, in, in Chicago, uh, it's all about the products that a company delivers into the marketplace. If you have good products, you can typically figure out some way to be successful. It starts with the products, but as we'll talk about in just a moment, it doesn't always end there. In fact, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in Silicon Valley is that great products don't always win. Uh, you can find plenty of examples that you're probably aware of yourself of people who have had the best product. Uh, going way, way back, how about the Betamax losing out to VHS uh, recorders? But maybe that's too far back. At any rate, <coughs> trust me when I say you can have the best technology, you can have the best product, and still not have a successful strategy, and you lose to somebody who you can't believe actually beat you with their product. Let me give you a couple of examples. My, my first startup <coughs> excuse me, was a company called Personics. Personics was actually the first company to think about breaking albums into individual songs and allowing people to mix those into a compilation of their own. It was way before that music was digital. In fact, this music that we did this with was actually analog and it was delivered onto a cassette. You probably have seen those in museums, but they, are, they were a very, very powerful medium. And what we did was we allowed people to go into a record store, <coughs> choose from a catalog of songs, the songs that they most wanted to put on a cassette, and then they could have that recorded while they waited and they walk out of the store. It was a brilliant innovation. Nobody had ever done it before. Nobody had ever thought about breaking an album down like that before, even though people were doing it at home on their own. It was probably to this day one of the best business ideas outside of CNN that I've ever seen. Unfortunately, <coughs> Unfortunately, um, the company that was built around that idea was one of the worst executions in business history. Um, it was riddled with young people like myself who had never done it before. Uh, the CEO was a brilliant, brilliant guy. He came up with the idea, but he also had never run a company before, so he was making a lot of mistakes. The CFO was his brother. 
who no longer, who not only didn't have an accounting degree, uh, but in fact uh, had actually never been in an accounting position in his life. He was actually a uh, psychotherapist. So <coughs> if you didn't like the numbers that we had on a monthly basis, he could make you feel a lot better about it. <laughs> but unfortunately, over the course of three or four years, the feel-good feeling out of the CFO's office and out of the CEO's office and even out of the head of marketing's office sort of couldn't make up for the fact that we weren't executing well, even though the idea was absolutely brilliant. And over time, that company did not succeed, and time passed, and the digital revolution came. And we were the natural successors. Had we still been in business, we would have been the ones, instead of iTunes, for example, that drove the music revolution. But instead, we failed to execute, and Personics is now in the dustbin of history. There are still a few people who remember it, and it's typically on a slide uh, on, on business ideas that went awry. But it was basically a great product around which we did not execute particularly well. One of my biggest business successes was a company called 3DFX Interactive. Uh, for those of you who were PC users in the 90s, we were the ones who essentially created the whole concept of 3D gaming on PCs. Uh, 3DFX graphics are what NVIDIA graphics or ATI graphics are today. We were the leaders. We were the leaders by 18 months to two years in terms of our technology. There wasn't anybody close to us uh, when I took over the company. And for about two or three years, it stayed that way. And I'll, I'll tell you a story for those of you who pay attention to numbers. Sort of listen to how this company grew. When I joined the company, it was a $4 million company. The next year we went public, it was a $44 million company. The year after that, it was a $210 million company. And the year after that, when I finally left the company, it was a $450 million company. It was a rocket ship. The problem was, beneath that rocket ship was a, uh, was a caboose, basically, uh, that was ricketing and rocketing down the trains and never quite uh, tracks and never quite ready uh, for prime time. And we had never really built the infrastructure because the company was growing so quickly to be able to execute day in and day out. In the meantime, there was a company across the railroad tracks called NVIDIA, run by a person by the name of Jensen Wang, who is still there today, running now a multi-billion dollar company. And Jensen didn't have the same technology we had. He didn't have the same great marketing and sales that we had. But he had one thing that we didn't have, which was an absolute laser focus on execution. So while we were out swinging for the fence, occasionally hitting great uh, products out the door, Jensen was just going along. If you've ever seen uh, Butch casting the Sundance Kid, the reaction we had to NVIDIA was much like the reaction when the uh, train opens up and the horses come out, and they ask the question, who are those guys? Because the fact of the matter is they kept on after us day after day after day. And there was an example where we had the best product, but better execution day in and day out in the marketplace ended up beating us. And finally, one last story, because it's the best example I know of. The week that the iPod was released into the marketplace, my company, the, the Rio company, which was a division of Sonic Blue, which I ran, released a, a product that I think in many respects had a better user interface, it had more memory, uh, it was a better product. Than the, uh, uh, than the iPod. It was called the Rio Riot. I'm sure you remember it. So the Rio Riot had one problem. It looked stupid. It, it was without, without question the, the worst industrial design that I've ever seen in my lifetime. It was, it was frightening when you pulled it out of a case. Now, if the iPod hadn't been around, it probably would have been fine. But imagine this scene. My vice president of engineering, who was responsible for this device, gets on an airplane to Tokyo. As he's getting onto the airplane, he starts to pull out his Rio Riot, which is literally this big. And the person sitting next to him pulls out an iPod. My vice president of engineering looks over at the iPod and then flies all the way to Tokyo, never pulls out his Rio Riot because he was embarrassed to have it next to the iPod. Um, a better product, but it proved one thing to me forevermore, which is design is everything. Uh, that, that device, not as good a product, not as good as a user interface, the iPod was a beautiful device. It t today is a beautiful device. And because Steve Jobs focused on the right thing instead of the things that didn't matter nearly as much, uh, he ended up creating, uh, among other reasons, a huge, huge business. And today, the Rio is no longer. So my mother had a conversation with me when I went off to college. And it was one of those moments where I knew I was going to get the wisdom that had probably been passed through, you know, generation after generation after generation of people. 
Even though I was the first person from my family to ever go to college, I somehow assumed that this conversation had taken place for generations. It had not, apparently. Because uh, my mother told me one thing. She said, whatever you do, don't try and save money on toilet paper and peanut butter. That was it. Uh, that was the advice. Well, the only thing I can actually add to that after 30 years of experience in business is customer service. So don't try and save money on any of those three things because it's going to cost you in the long run. A couple of examples. I was at a company called MyFamily.com. MyFamily.com was, and still is, the leader in the genealogy business. Subscription-based business allows you to subscribe for $100 a year to do research on your genealogy. Uh, it turns out it's a huge business. It's the second largest hobby in the United States, and people are willing to pay a lot of money to be able to trace their roots. But when I was there, one of the things that I noticed was that every year when our subscriptions would come up, we actually picked up the phone at customer service and we would call the customer and say, hey, your subscription's about to uh, run out. Would you like to renew? And I was astonished. I, I, I went to our head of customer service and I said, why are you doing that? Every other subscription business in the world just lets it automatically renew and then we try our damnedest to try and keep them from knowing that it's coming up for renewal. We try to hide it. And they said, no, 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 we think it's a good business practice because the more you inform the consumer, the better they are, the happier they are. Maybe we can solve some problems. Maybe they didn't have a good experience. We can make it a better experience. And I thought it was a hopelessly naive view of the world. And so I said to them, okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to do a study. One half of our group will not get that phone call. The other half of the group will get that phone call, and we'll see at the end of the day uh, who gets the highest renewals. I, I, I was a slam dunk. I would have bet my you know, honor and sacred fortune on it. Well, it turns out after a month of study, they came back and the renewal rates on the people who got the phone calls were 50% higher than those who got no phone call at all. Proving if you treat the consumer like a customer as opposed to as a captive, you're more likely to get more business from them. And today, you see over and over again businesses that commit the same mistake over and over again. Jamba, in our business, is a subscription-based service that has gotten into a lot of trouble by actually tricking consumers, allegedly, into subscribing and then trying to hide for as long as they can whether or not they're subscribed. Well, the fact of the matter is their business had some severe problems and now has gone through a lot of transition, and I think they're doing a much better job now. But the fact of the matter is any business that treats consumers as captives will someday suffer the consequences. Another example comes from my days at Sonic Blue. When I took over the company, the first conversation I had with the CFO was that the company was about to go bankrupt, uh, which I thank, promptly thanked him for telling me that after I had accepted the job. Um, <laughs> and uh, I said, gosh, is there anything we can do? And he said, well, we could cut costs dramatically. And after cutting costs, maybe there's a chance we can save the business. So that's a great idea. Let's do that. So we ended up laying off uh, probably 25% of our workforce, including half of my executive staff. We did it very quickly. We did it very well. But we were searching for other places to save money. And one of those places, as you can imagine, was customer service. We were running Replay TV, Rio uh, music players, and a DVD business that was then the, probably the number seven DVD business in the world, DVD players. So we had a lot of phone calls coming in from customers. So we sat down with the customer service person and said, OK, what can we do to reduce costs? He said, well, how about offshore? Well, we'll, everybody's moving offshore. Let's move offshore. Great idea. Let's move offshore. Give me a plan in two weeks how we're going to go offshore. Came up with a plan, agreed with the plan, sent things offshore. We worked really hard. We executed really well. We turned on the service. The flood of phone calls came into India, where we had set this service up. And we had grossly miscalculated the number of people that we needed versus the number of phone calls. And the result was that the uh, Indian workers who we had hired realized within two or three days that their task was hopeless. They became totally stressed out, just like Americans, and they left. Who knew? I, I just had never seen anything like this before. And all of a sudden, we had 45 people in our India office walk off the job. The phone calls when your customer service people walk off the job then start coming to the CEO. And you talk about stressed out. You should have said my, my assistant at the time was beside herself because there were people who were calling to threaten her. There were people calling to threaten me, which she thought was a much better idea. Uh, <laughs> and it was just one of the worst moments uh, of, my, of my business career, proving the, the, the adage that you can't cut costs at customer service. Uh, later in the week in which this happened, I was relating this story to my wife uh, and was telling her how we had done this. And I added the one part I haven't added to the story, which was that we implemented this program on November 20th 
right before the busy holiday season. And she said to me, so let me get this straight. You, you changed your customer service, which was working just fine in Oregon. You turned it over to a bunch of people who hadn't been trained very well. There weren't enough of them, and you did it right before Christmas. And she says, so who was the idiot who made that decision? <laughs> that was me. Uh, but I learned my lesson, and I now have expensive peanut butter, toilet paper, and customer service. When it comes to products, your people are everything. And I'm going to move through this fairly quickly because I think it's in some senses obvious. But if you're ever in a position of managing a company that has a product group in it, find the people who are the stars and nurture them. Treat them like rock stars. Do what they need. Give them what they need. Make them feel a central part of the company. When I was at 3DFX, there were probably five people in the entire world who were the leading 3D architects, who were the geniuses behind the products that we made. And we had probably three out of the five of those, maybe even four out of the five of those. One of them was being recruited heavily by NVIDIA during those days. And as the, as the uh, explosion in the valley was happening, the, the ante for this person kept going up and up and up. One day he came into my office and he told me that he had had an offer on the table for a half a million dollar signing bonus to leave the company and join another company for a half a million dollars. And I was able to talk him out of it. And the reason I was able to talk him out of it was because I had spent time with him over the course of the previous year, two years that he'd been with the company, building a relationship with him, talking about how important he was to the company, talking about how he was you know, the essence of, of our product design, and, and paying him the respect that he deserved, not when it came time to negotiate his salary, but when he was a part of the process. And so he knew when I was talking to him that he was sincere, I was sincere, about his role in the company. And one of the most important observations that I have is that it's rarely about compensation with people. Most of the time it's about their role in the company, how they feel, and again, coming back to the point, are they having fun, are they enjoying themselves? And if they are, you can keep them in your company for a lot longer. The people. One of the things that I've noticed is that the people that you deal with on your way up the chain of command uh, are very, very important to you in the long run. I've made a special effort over the course of my career to reach out to younger people, more junior people, to treat them with respect. You, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a business meeting where there is the senior person, the mid-level person, and the junior person is supposed to be taking notes. And the mistake that a lot of people make in meetings they look just at the senior person, they completely ignore the other two, and they especially ignore the junior person. It's a mistake. Make eye contact with that person just like you do with the senior person. Shake that person's hand with the same vigor and sincerity that you shake the senior person's hand. And then if that person ever calls you up and wants some advice, take the time to give them the advice because you never know where that person's going to end up. And they may in turn do a favor for somebody else who ends up uh, having a great career and you have been indirectly responsible for that person. There was a person who ran the details and logistics of my first roadshow at 3DFX when we took the company public. This is the most junior of the bankers, and their role really is sort of the logistics of the, of the road. We're on the road for three weeks, Japan, Europe, the U.S., meeting with a lot of uh, potential investors, and he's the guy who's up early in the morning uh, making sure that the limousine's there to pick us up. He's the guy who's making sure that all of the uh, meetings have been set up, changing the schedule when it needs to be changed. We have the presentation all ready. He's the person who picks up the check at night, the most important task. Uh, he's the person who, when all of us are you know, asleep and sleeping, is worrying about the next day. I spent a lot of time with this person. I think I treated him with a lot of respect. Uh, we spent some time in Paris together at museums, and I treated him as if he was an equal member of the team, which he was. I think that's probably an unusual experience for him. It was only six months later when I was talking to somebody else that I discovered that that person uh, had a uh, trust fund of $250 million. Uh, didn't need to be on that trip at all, actually. In fact, had never submitted the expenses for that trip because he called them the small things in life. Uh, but today, he's running one of the largest uh, funds that invests in venture capital funds in the world. Uh, and I've had occasion now uh, to talk to him uh, not directly about things that affect my career, but venture capital friends of mine who have asked me for a favor to be a reference for them to him. And because of the credibility that I developed in my relationship with him, that's a conversation that not only comes well, but I think has a fair amount of credibility in it. Uh, and again, it's because I treated him with the respect that he deserved, uh, and it turns out uh, he grew into it. One of the hardest things for any 
person to do in the business world is to give constructive and sometimes even negative criticism uh, to somebody. When somebody is not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing, it's very difficult uh, to look them in the eyes <coughs> and tell them how they're doing. Uh, I used to have a hard time with that, and it became the most acute problem when it came time to either fire that person because they were not performing well, or even worse, laying that person off because of business reverses that might have happened. Uh, that's happened to me, unfortunately, in my career a lot. I mean, I'm personally responsible for laying off hundreds of people. Uh, and I have certain rules uh, that I live by when I do that. But the thing that I always remember that I tell more junior people when I'm coaching them through those circumstances is a phrase that's always helped me, which is, just say the words. You know what words you want to say. You know what needs to be said. But it's always very difficult to get them out of your mouth. But if you just say the words, you'd be surprised at how that conversation goes. And by saying the words sincerely, you'll be surprised at how people will react. I've had as many people shake my hands after laying them off as I've had walk out of the room angry at me. Uh, I've had some people who've actually come back to work for me after I laid them off one time as if they hadn't learned their lesson the first time. Um, but it's, it's one of the things that I think uh, helps in any of those reverse situations when things are bad is to make sure that you communicate well and sincerely, you explain the circumstances, you tell them what they did or didn't do wrong, and many times they've done nothing wrong at all, and, and make sure that you're telling them what's on your mind as well as in your heart. This is a phrase, agree and commit, disagree and commit, that actually comes from Scott McNeely, at least that's where I was told it was, it was from, and I've, I've adopted it, stolen it, uh, and probably should be paying royalties for it, but I'm not going to. But it's probably the single best business phrase that I've ever seen for building a culture of a company. Uh, we have a company right now at Glue Mobile that has uh, epic battles. I mean, we have people who disagree with each other all the time. But we have ways that that happens. It happens in business meetings. It happens in hallways. It happens in my office. But then we make a decision. And if you're the person who was in favor of that decision, then you stop the discussion because you've won. If you're the person who disagreed with that, you also stop the discussion because you lost. The most corrosive thing that can happen in any company is to have the debate continue after a decision has been made. And any time that happens at a company, you find decisions being remade and remade and remade and a culture that starts becoming quite corrosive. Um, I have a, a friend who I once thought was going to be one of the most successful people that I knew. And he was at a very successful career, but not as successful as I thought it might be. And I think, as I think about what was wrong with his career, that the mistake that he made was that he has never been a disagree and commit person. He's been a disagree and keep disagreeing and keep disagreeing person. And in fact, it's made him sort of a disagreeable person. And he radiates that disagreement as he walks through the hall. He's a competitive guy, he played a lot of sports, he's bright, he's energetic, he's a terrific guy, except he can't get over the fact that somebody made a decision that he thinks in his mind was stupid. And you know what? It might have been stupid, but the fact that he can't get over it, do things. The reason I was in Washington, D.C. was because I wanted to save the world. I really did. I mean, I wanted to be the chief of staff for the White House, before that was hip, by the way. And I wanted to do it because I believed very fervently in the things that were going on in the world. I sort of got over that because uh, I saw how Washington can be sometimes. But I still believe that there are values that, that, that drive you in your business life that you can adhere to and let guide the decisions that you make. One of the things that seems sort of trite to say, but I really believe, is doing the right thing is frequently the right thing to do. Um, you know, a lot of times you can get into a debate with yourself and sort of lose sight of that compass. Uh, but there's always in a divisive, serious dispute something that you can extract yourself from and say, so, so what's the right thing to do in this circumstance? And that becomes more acute as you get into really, really tough decisions. There was one time that I remember in particular when I was at Sonic Blue. Now, Sonic Blue eventually did go into Chapter 11. And during that process, we were putting together a compensation package for not only the management team, but for all of the employees, so that we could look the employees in the, in the eyes and say, after we have sold all the assets of the company, here's what you're going to get to keep them in the game. Nobody was going to get rich. In fact, the son who was back there, who was then much smaller. Um, and I went to the hospital uh, to, to visit my wife on the afternoon after he was born. And she looked up at me and she said, I've come to a decision. 
And I said, what's that decision? And she says, I'm not going back to work. Now, we literally had never discussed this, which may have been naive on my part, but it didn't seem like a very good idea to me. I, I said to her, let's, let's just set the stage here. Uh, my company just went Chapter 11. Uh, you're 40% of our income. Uh, don't know if the company's going to survive even another week or two. Maybe you could reconsider this decision. And she looked up at me in a phrase that has become famous in our household, and she said, figure it out. <laughs> And I think I did, actually. I, I, I went back to the office, and I worked a lot harder. Uh, and <laughs> we took the company from 175 people down to 11 pioneers. Uh, and we sold the company to Time Warner, telling them that we had some technology that they would like. And while at Time Warner, we recreated the business all over again. We morphed it into different directions. It became Warner Custom Music. I became CEO of that group. Uh, it became not a big company at Time Warner. It became a $30 million company at Time Warner. And by the time I left, I was in an entirely different position in my career than I had been when the company was in Chapter 11. Here I was, a lawyer who had never proven they could do anything other than drive a company into the ground, uh, effectively. Uh, and with, from, a, from a startup that, that, frankly, outside of the music business, nobody had even heard of. And I, what was I going to do next? I had no idea. And I remember the day I sat down with the CEO who was left, having the good sense and the career to allow him to do that. And he said, so what are you going to do? You're going to go back into the law? And, and my stomach just churned because I had fought so hard not to be a lawyer. And here it was, the path was open to me to either become a lawyer again and probably make a fair amount of money or keep moving forward with this carcass of a broken company. And I, I kept going forward with the carcass. And I left Warner Custom Music two and a half years later uh, and, and went into a series of companies, one of which was 3DFX, which went public, one of which was MyFamily.com, which has done very well, one of which was Glue. I didn't give up. And, and maybe it's because my wife wouldn't let me. Uh, but one way or another, it was successful, and I'm glad that it was. Uh, the other example of not giving up, by the way, is Jensen Wang FX. There were several times where they were on zero dollars left, and he managed to not give up, and at the end of the day, ended up beating 3DFX. And so finally, despite what I've just said, it's not really the end of the world if you fail. Uh, Silicon Valley is filled with successful failures. Uh, I consider myself to be not only a serial CEO, but a serial failure. Uh, I have had almost as many failures as I've had successes. But that's true of venture capitalists in general. And it's true of venture capital CEOs. We're going to have failures. Uh, that's OK. But I've done a couple of things to sort of moderate that so that it isn't the end of the world. Uh, my wife was actually reminding me of this this morning. We've never built our financial burn rate, if you will, our personal burn rate, at such a level that we could never afford to go backwards, with the exception of the time when we're in the hospital. Um, We've always had the flexibility. We've always saved money. We've always put our investments into very conservative investments. I don't invest in a lot of high-tech companies. We've always made it possible financially for, us to, for me to make bets in my business life without having to worry about a huge mortgage, a fancy car, and fancy vacations. We made the decision that the risk that we were going to take in our life was going to be in the business, not in our personal finances. And that's made a huge difference in the flexibility that I've had to go ahead and take a flyer and to do something at a lower salary but with a lot of stock as upside. Or, as the occasion might present itself, to sell, tell somebody to chase themselves. You can see from the resume, I've done that a fair number of times. And, and walk out the door because I didn't agree with what was going on in the company or because I didn't have the influence that I thought I needed in order to be successful. And finally, this may be you know, a trite statement, uh, but it is really, really true. If you have a solid family life, even a chaotic family life, uh, but a solid one nonetheless, you know at the end of the day that if you mess up in business, you can lick your wounds, you can go back into the house where your family at the end of the day still thinks of you as a hero. I'm not the CEO at the house, by the way. I'm, I'm merely the chief operating officer at the house. But you know you can go back into the house, you can be loved by your family, your dog loves you, your kids love you, your wife loves you, your husband, if it may be the case. Um, the most important thing, I think, to being a successful entrepreneur is a low-risk financial profile and a family that loves you whether you're successful or not. If you can come up with those two things, you can't lose no matter what happens in your business life.
There we go. So I left a little bit of time for questions. Um, and I'd be happy to answer, oh, almost anything. Yes? Uh, so the question is, uh, as somebody who has worked in a lot of high-pressure situations, how do you balance your life uh, with your business demands? You know, and there's no easy answer to that. I, I had a, a friend who married a woman, a wonderful woman, who I knew from the very beginning was going to be a problem. Uh, because when he was the least bit late to work, it became a problem in their marriage. I mean, the good news is my wife sort of understood. I mean, her, her father was a general in the Army. So the fact that I wasn't like gone for a year seemed pretty good to her. Uh, the real problem is when you come home and she says, oh, you're back already. Um, you know, it, it comes down to, to making sure that your spouse and then your kids understand those demands. And then, you know, I don't play golf on the weekends. I don't uh, hang out with the boys. I don't have boys' nights out. I don't go and watch football games on Monday night at the local pub and and hang out with my buddies. I mean, I'm either at work or I'm home with my family doing something. Um, I, 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 that's the commitment that I made. I, my business life has squeezed out some of the other things that other people get a great deal of pleasure. I, I love what I do. Uh, and for me, that's like a hobby. And if I'm traveling in London, I have dinner in London, that to me is probably better than most people would find you know, uh, at, a, at a pub watching football on a Monday night. So I get my my enjoyment from the travel that I get out of my job and the stress of my job. But if you don't have an, a family that starts with an understanding of what's going to happen, if you don't discuss that and communicate it, it can be tough. It is still tough. I mean, my wife and I to this day have, you know, discussions about my schedule. Uh, but, you know, she understands that th this is the trade-off that we make for the life that we've chosen. That's a very good question. It's not an easy one to resolve. Yes? Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I don't think the problem of the Bush administration was that they, the people inside the administration disagreed and committed. I think that they made the wrong decision. And, uh, you know, they just, the people who were around the table agreeing and disagreeing were wrong. Um, but the fact that they agreed with each other is not a bad thing. I think in companies, more like in, different than the democracy, we're not a democracy. We are a totalitarianism with participation. And, uh, <laughs> and so we run it a little bit different. And hopefully by having a lot of disagreement around the table, not, not disrespectful disagreement, just a willingness to discuss an issue thoroughly and even bruise feelings sometimes, by having that sort of an environment, but then being able to move on from that, I think you end up with better decisions. And, and so I, I went back and thought about it, but it was a pretty daunting challenge because the right thing to do was to, was to not go forward with this company because I could have stayed there for a year and tried to turn it around. And I've done a pretty good job, by the way, of going into companies that are not all that they should be and making them into something more. It's sort of a specialty of mine. And, and, I, and I think I'm good at it. There was nothing to be done to this company. Uh, and so the next day, I resigned and, and gave him, you know, a month's notice to help him through the transition and worked with him as much as I could, tried to make it as smooth as possible. And the fact of the matter is I've never done business with that venture firm. And in fact, you know, I bump into them from time to time. I don't know if I'm being blackballed by them or not. Don't much care. But at the end of the day, it was the right decision for me. And the next job I got was a much more interesting job. Uh, it was a better job and, you know, Nobody even knows that it happened. It's not that I'm lying about it on my resume. I tell people about it all the time. Uh, in fact, when I'm not on camera, I actually even use names. <laughs> yes? You talked about the video game company that you worked with and how it, it was strapped to a rocket. And that uh, that product sort of unleashed this pent-up demand and you couldn't keep up with the growth. Do you think that that contributed to some advantages to the number two player? in that they were able to work on their product and get it right before the market actually started snapping up what they had to offer. Yeah, absolutely. So the question is, uh, in a high growth situation like we had at 3DFX, 
uh, was it better maybe to be the second player instead of the first player? So there's a, a phrase that, that somebody used once that I still, my favorite business, other than the ones I talked about earlier, my favorite business phrase. And it is that the uh, early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. And, and I, I, think there's a, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, in, in NVIDIA's case, they didn't have to break all the marketing ground. We were out teaching people what 3D was. We were the ones who had the exclusive with Quake that taught people how Quake could be played on 3D on their PC. We were spending literally millions of dollars building the market. And they, in turn, were sort of just executing away. Uh, and they didn't care about the ups and downs in the market. They didn't care. They never got rattled, apparently, uh, about what we were doing. Uh, and by the time disaster befell 3DFX, and it was literally after, mostly after I left, although the inklings were, were around when I left, uh, by the time you know, that happened, they, they had put in place a path of execution that basically opened up a market that was already built for them by us. So I think sometimes being second is best. You, you can see all sorts of examples of that in the internet world, and I think you'll see it in the mobile world. We were not the first mobile company. Jamdat was the first mobile company, and they've been very successful. Um, but by being you know, later than them, I think we've learned a lot from the mistakes that they made, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be able to not make those same mistakes going forward. Yes. Yeah, um, you mentioned that you were involved in turnaround situations. And that, that seems like a, like a pathless task. Why would you think that upon yourself? So the question is, what in the heck am I thinking? Uh, why, why do a uh, turnaround situation? Um, again, it, it all comes down to the theme of not wanting to be bored. Um, I, you know, and also a hubris, uh, I'm sure, to some extent. I'd had a couple of successes under my belt. Uh, the Sonic Blue is, is the example that you're talking about. Anybody who followed the history of Sonic Blue would know it was, it was a collection of some of the most interesting companies in the world. Replay TV, which in my mind still is a better product than TiVo. To this day is a better product than TiVo. Um, uh, Rio, uh, which was the, the inventor of the MP3 uh, uh, radios or, or, or storage devices. Uh, and even um, Go Video, which was one of the interesting collections, had the, the first uh, dual-deck uh, VCR and dual-deck DVD. Uh, those were great companies, and I had a chance to go in and, and fix those. I didn't know it was as broken as it was. I didn't know the company was about to go bankrupt, um, although there were a whole bunch of extraneous circumstances that led to that. Uh, so I think part of it was, uh, you know, at that point in my career, I had a choice between enterprise software companies uh, or networking companies or Sonic Blue, broken. And I chose broken over boring. Maybe I've been the wrong decision, by the way. Yes? What would you say was the role of creativity in the businesses and the people that you've worked with? Uh, I think create, so the role, what's the role of creativity in the business that I've worked with? So there, there are a lot of different ways that creativity happens in a business. I personally, though it sounds hard to believe to people around me, consider myself to be an extremely creative person. My creativity manifests itself in business strategy. Uh, I can take a company, I think, that is plain vanilla and turn it into a platform for doing more interesting things. I think that's what we're doing with Glue. I think that's what we did with 3DFX. And that's what we did essentially with MyFamily.com, which was a very small company when I got there. But we acquired four companies that made it a much more interesting company. So you can be a creative business person just in the deals that you do and the way in which you envision your business. You can be creative in product ways. Uh, and I think the people who come up with great ideas, whether it's the iPod or TiVo or Replay TV, are among the most creative people in our society. They may not be. Uh, writing on a, a, a literal canvas, but they're writing on a virtual canvas by creating those, uh, those products. Even engineers who are sitting down to do code are expressing creativity in the way in which they write that code. I mean, there's no correct way to write code. There are a lot of different ways to write the same code, and the creativity of an engineer can be manifested in the way they choose to write that code. Uh, marketing people, the creativity expresses itself not only in the, the look and feel of a particular campaign, but in the way in which they approach the strategy of their marketing uh, approach. You know, what are you doing that's different than what anybody else has done before? When we launched Ice Age 2 as a mobile game on a worldwide basis, we broke all the rules of what had happened in the mobile gaming business in the way in which we did that. We didn't spend a single dime, and yet we had carriers all across the world spending millions of dollars advertising Ice Age 2 because they wanted to get close to that brand, and they used our game 
to do it. So I think creativity is almost everything in business. And if you don't think you're creative, you probably have it somewhere in your gene pool, and you'll find, if you're lucky, the right place to, to have that creativity come through. Yes? What strategies have you used in dealing with personal adversaries? Patience. Uh, what what uh, strategies have I used in dealing with personal adversaries? You know, uh, um, I was saying to somebody the other day that there is no one in business I have ever dealt with where I think they know how much I dislike them. Uh, and yet there are plenty of people that I dislike a lot in business. Um, but there's absolutely no upside to letting somebody know that you don't like them. Because they may not be in a position of power today, but the next day they may be the buyer when you're going to Best Buy trying to sell replay TVs. Uh, or they may be the, 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 you know, the chairman of the company that you want to join. Um, and so I've made a rule that when I deal with people adversarial to me, that I, I submerge my ego to the business requirements. Um, and and it's, it's not an easy thing to do, especially if you have any sort of an ego. But the, I had a meeting with a guy today who didn't return my phone calls for almost two months. Uh, and I finally figured out how to get through to him. And we have had two or three really good business meetings. But if I had done what I wanted to do, and said, I'm not going to deal with a guy who won't return my phone calls or my emails, uh, who in the hell does he think he is, sort of attitude, we never would have gotten to the point where we're about to cut the deal that we're about to cut. So the way I deal with people in the business world is I think first and foremost, what is my business need? What do my employees need? How do I need to behave in this circumstance? And then uh, submerge my own personal um, reactions uh, to that. Yes? So the, the question is, how can an engineer learn more about business? Well, I mean, as long as you're still in school, take lots of business courses. Read Business Week. Read Forbes. Uh, you know, read the Wall Street Journal, though. Don't read the editorial page. Um, the, you know, learn as much as you can. And then when you get into, into the business world, I think it's great to be an engineer for a couple of years, to, to live you know, among the people who will drive the business going forward. But one of the best ways for an engineer to move in an organization uh, and, and lawyers don't really have this choice, is, is in product marketing. I mean, the Valley is filled with roles for product marketing people who need to have more technical background than the average lawyer, for example. Uh, I could never be a good product marketing person in any Silicon Valley company of, of any significance because I don't have a technical background. But if you have enough technical background, especially if you have a technical background, you can be among the best product marketing people around if you make a point to learn the business stuff and to think in business terms uh, as you go along. Because a product marketing person who stays as an engineer isn't really doing product marketing. They're doing engineering that's you know, disguised under a different business card. But I think that's a perfect, uh, a perfect path. And once you're in product marketing, you can go anywhere. Um, you can go anywhere. They said that would be more valuable than going to consulting, for example. Well, I think consulting is, uh, you know, I, I spent uh, two great years at the Boston Consulting Group. I learned a lot about business there. But I think they, too, are looking for something more than just a, a strict engineering background. They want to see that business uh, analysis and business ability. I think engineering to uh, a graduate business program uh, can, can be the combination that gets you into a consulting practice that's quite good. Anybody who can spend a couple of years in one of the better uh, business consulting firms should do it. Same thing, if you can get a job at Kraft Foods in there, uh, product marketing group, uh, any, any large company right out of school that gives training, if you can stomach it for a couple of years, even if you want to be an entrepreneur, go and learn how big businesses do it. The biggest problem I have with people when I hire them is they know how to be entrepreneurs, but I'm not trying to grow a small company. I'm trying to grow a big company. And so I need people in my company who know not how to run a $50 million business. I want people who know how to run a $500 million business but are comfortable in a $50 million business. If you can have both the ability to be big knowledge but small flexibility, you're the perfect candidate for a Silicon Valley company. Yes? What do you think of that 
so the question is, what about the convergence between mobile phones and consoles? Uh, we were one of the first companies to do a console title in a big way uh, on a mobile phone. It was Driver 3, which was a big hit in, in, in Europe especially, and a, excuse me, an Atari uh, title. Um, we believed, and I think the uh, analytic world of investment banking believed, that this was going to be a business just like the console business, all about big console titles. I think one of the things that we've discovered the last couple of years is that that is a portion of the business, but a much bigger portion are titles that are much more casual in nature. People would prefer to play Millionaire or Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or Monopoly or Zuma, uh, all titles that we put out on headset, handsets. They would rather play those kind of easy to play five minutes, ten minutes here and there games than they would to play, you know, frankly, Halo 2 on their handset. Um, and I think that's going to continue to be the case, that people view the, the, the mobile phone as a different experience, just like the DS is a different experience from, uh, you know, from the Xbox 360. And having games that, that, that fit more to that dynamic, I think, has been something that, that has happened in the last couple of years that we've taken advantage of uh, and that others are as well, but that they're, distinguish it from the console experience. The console experience will be a part of it, but probably only uh, uh, you know twenty percent of it overall. So you, you mentioned the, the sort of casual side, and you mentioned the DS. It's kind of funny because Nintendo is also aiming at that casual side. Do you see that that's going to be subsumed into the mobile market? I, I think there it already is. As a matter of fact, I think today you know the the, the majority of titles sold uh, on mobile phones could be easily classified. Uh, as casual, if we were to use the same same definition that you and I are probably thinking of, and only a smaller percentage are actually classic console titles. More people play Zuma Monopoly than play, um, you know, Call of Duty. I think that was uh, was that the last last question. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And on behalf of Bases and STVP, we'd like to thank Greg for speaking today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.